This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. Today, we're going to be looking at the story of Alan Godfrey, a British police constable whose strange encounter had consequences that impacted his entire life. Now, we previewed this a little bit in our last episode where we looked at an issue of Flying Saucer Review. That story, entitled A Policeman's Lot, uh, gave a fake name for uh, police constable Alan Godfrey. Uh, But in this episode, we're going to look at the story mainly through his 2017 book about uh, not just that incident, but about his life in general, titled Who or What Were They? Uh, The subtitle is The True Story, They Did Not Want You to read. I will say it was easy for me to read this story, despite the shadowy figures who might oppose it. Um, Godfrey himself is selling copies of the book um, through eBay, and despite it coming from the UK here to uh, the United States, it uh, it arrived very quickly with uh, with an autograph from Alan Godfrey, 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 Godfrey himself. So. With that out of the way, let's uh, let's talk about this story, which is a very, very interesting one indeed. Who or what were they opens with a somewhat chilling sequence. Climbing up the slippery railway sleepers holding back a mountain of loose coal, I reached the top and peered over the rim. What I saw next would haunt me for the rest of my life. I was no more than inches away from the face and staring into the open eyes of an obviously dead body. Of course, I had seen bodies before during my service in the police, but this one was inexplicably terrifying. In fact, it sent a shiver down my spine. Those eyes staring up at me seemed to draw me in, as though they were trying to tell me something. And in those moments, I thought about the last sight that this poor man must have witnessed. Why did that image produce such a chill inside? This was a question that would long stay with me. Little did I know then how those few moments would change my life and eventually embroil me within one of the biggest cover-ups by British authorities about which the file to this day remains classified. It was a cover-up that would also end my career in the police. Indeed, my story would reach its climax where it had begun years earlier, at the police headquarters in Wakefield, West Yorkshire, England. This forward or introduction um, segues from that account uh, and, and sort of foreshadowing to you know his last memories of, of being a police officer before he was dismissed because he just couldn't keep his mouth shut. The book then meanders a bit and, and meanders in a good way. I don't mean meander in a pejorative way. It, it um, takes us on a journey through Godfrey's early life, his entry into the police force. This takes up a few chapters and I liked this bit a lot. He did a very good job of capturing the flavor of police work in the 1970s 
and early 80s in, in small towns in the north of England. And we also get a story of a horrible injury that the constable suffered. I spotted several of my fellow officers running down the street from the station toward me to provide backup to what was a hazardous arrest of potentially dangerous persons. But I could not wait for help or the suspect would escape. So I attempted to arrest the one that had been named by the witness. He was determined not to come quietly and a struggle ensued. Suddenly, I felt an awful searing pain in my groin. I recoiled backwards, doubled up in agony. The rest of the lads arrived soon after, having witnessed the attack as they closed in. Now they grabbed hold of the writhing suspect. The youth was going berserk as the other two ran off and left him. It took four of us to carry the screaming and struggling maniac back to the station, and at the time I was in terrible pain and felt like I wanted to be sick. My suffering was indescribable, and to make matters worse, the youth took hold of my thumb and the jaws of his mouth and tried to bite it off and cut so deep that he nearly succeeded as blood spurted everywhere. By the time we got him into the station, he was still fighting with the others as I collapsed onto the floor, no longer able to control the pain. That is, that is shockingly horrible and awful, and I can't even imagine. He talks a bit about the after effects of this, this injury to his area uh, that involved multiple surgeries and probably specialists like reconstructive urologists and all sorts of things. Um, it, it left him sort of out of action for quite a while. But when he returns to his duties, we get some additional information and narrative uh, about uh, Godfrey's increasing differences of opinion with police leadership over methods and attitudes. And on the surface, this seems like like padding, like he's he's telling the story of his of his police career rather than getting to the point, which is of course UFOs, right? That's why we buy these books because we want to get to the UFOs. But actually, what this is doing is setting up the background of things to come pretty well, and then we get to the case, which Godfrey says was quote another turning point in my career in the force and would, in due course, lead to places that I could never imagine. Bad things were coming my way, and they would change everything. Please attend the coal yard at Todd Morden Railway Station. We have a report from the ambulance station. There's a body. Godfrey made his way to the coal yard. I will never forget the sight that confronted me. A male in his fifties, and the look on his face in death was of fear and pain. The eyes were open and staring into the sky, his mouth slightly open so you could see his teeth. His hair had been cut very short into a kind of crew cut, but it was not neat. It looked like it had been done rather unprofessionally. However, the strangest sight of all was around the rear of the skull as I inspected the man's crown. Here were what looked like several small burn marks, similar in shape and size. Carefully moving the head over to one side, I could see around the nape of the neck located at the base of the skull what seemed to be a large weeping wound approximately two inches in length and about one and a half inches across. There was some sort of a substance smeared over the opening of this injury. Inspecting further down the body, I could see the arms were resting on top of it, not folded, 
but set slightly on the stomach area, just as you might place them if you were having a nap on your couch after a long day. He also noticed that the body had a jacket, but no shirt, just an undershirt, and that there was no sign of coal dust on the body. Godfrey determined that the body must have been dressed hurriedly after the death. He was increasingly, in his words, ill at ease with the case. The suspicion of the law enforcement personnel on site was that the man had been murdered somewhere else and the body dumped on the coal heap. The local newspaper um, had a story on the case, and I don't know the date and exact paper. Um, the article is reproduced in a book by Rick Morin called Chance Encounters in the Valley of Lights. And this book is amazing. It's sort of a eight and a half by 11 sized hardcover uh, with uh, the majority of it is is gorgeous, uh, gorgeous color photos of the region, of the, the, the landscape of the area, interspersed with reproductions of newspaper clippings about the sighting, official documents that uh, are very useful to us here, uh, transcripts of, um, of conversations, uh, reproductions of uh, handwritten notes from the time. It is an amazing book. And just as I, I was shocked at how quickly and easily I was able to get my hands on Godfrey's memoir of his encounter, um, I was really surprised that I was able to get a copy of Chance Encounters in the Valley of Lights um, from Amazon very quickly uh, because it was, it was coming from Australia. I was very surprised at how, um, how smooth the process was getting these things. But it is an amazing book, and it is just about sort of this region and Godfrey's encounter, but it is really interesting to take this, this idea of one interesting UFO or paranormal case and do a book that combines landscape photography with primary sources in, in such an interesting way. I would love for there to be books about every major case that, uh, that were like this. And I better stop now before I talk myself into trying to do something like that. But in any case, that is my source for some of this information, including this local newspaper story. Riddle of body in goods yard. Mystery surrounds the death of a man thought to be Polish or Ukrainian whose body was discovered on a coal heap in the Todd Morton Railway Station goods yard. Police were yesterday trying to discover the identity of the man who was described as having a shaven head, probably because of a skin complaint from which he was suffering. The man, thought to be of Polish or Lithuanian origin, was said to be between 50 and 60 years old, 5 feet 6 inches in height, medium build with dark hair, and a sallow complexion. His body was found on the coal heap at 4 p.m. on Wednesday, when police immediately set about the task of identifying the man who was not carrying papers or other means of identification. We are requesting the cooperation of members of the public who might be able to help us find the identity of this man, said Police Community Affairs Officer Inspector Trevor Greenwood. The clothes on the body were a brown jacket with a John Collier label, brown trousers, brown shoes, and blue patterned socks. We are not applying any suspicious circumstances to this body yet, said Inspector Greenwood, but investigations were being continued. Inspector Greenwood thought the body had been on the heap for one or two days at the most. The Calderdale coroner, Mr. James Turnbull, had been informed and a post-mortem examination was being carried out yesterday morning, he said. 
The goods yard near the main railway line where the man was found is used as a coal depot by J.W. Parker Coal Merchants of Rockdale Road, Todd Morton. Mr. Parker's son, Trevor, discovered the body when he went to make a pickup at mid-afternoon yesterday. Information was, in fact, forthcoming, and the coroner's report named the deceased as Zygmunt John Adamski and recorded this as his cause of death. Heart failure due to ischemic heart disease, chronic bronchitis, and emphysema. Open verdict. Now, an open verdict means that the investigation is still ongoing into the entirety of the circumstances surrounding the man's death. Now, we knew from our previous episode uh, about that issue of Flying Saucer Review that this man was named Adamski, which would, as we will see, create connections and inspire, um, I'll say the word connections again, in people's minds that perhaps should not have been there. Um, and, and this is a little bit out of uh, chronological order, but later investigations into all of this um, would reveal more information about Adamski's background. Uh, the British UFO Research Associates dug into his background and interviewed coroners and things like that. And what we find is that Adamski was a, uh, a recent immigrant to, uh, to the United Kingdom. Um, he had left his house on Friday, June 6, 1980, um, according to uh, an, an article that was published at the time. Police were able to conclude that during the time he was missing, he had visited an acupuncturist. He had received other medical care, um, but that was about all that they could determine. Interviews between Graham Birdsall of Bufora and um, James Turnbull, the coroner who had done the postmortem on Adamski, revealed that Adamski's head had been shaved after he had died. It was postmortem uh, that the coroner said it was not uh, established that Adamski had visited an acupuncturist and that um, it would not be possible to run any tests on the substance that investigators found on Adamski. Um, Birdsall sort of says, would it be possible to run tests on the substance? And the coroner simply says, no. So the coroner was, was not really interested in playing any sorts of sort of super investigative UFO games with um, with the uh, Bufora people just from that transcript. That's the impression I get. Now, in attempting to determine what might have a, happened to Adamski, Godfrey talked to the man's wife and friends. Adamski had gone missing five days before his body was discovered, and no one could identify anyone who might have had a reason to harm him. Nothing was really out of the ordinary. He'd been shopping that morning with his cousin, who was visiting from Poland, and Adamski was also looking forward to his goddaughter's upcoming wedding. Adamski had no connection, Godfrey said, to Todd Morton, the city, the town of Todd Morton, which was 20 miles from Wakefield, where Adamski lived, so no one thought to search for him there. Testimony from witnesses at the place he was found confirmed that he must have been killed somewhere other than that coal heap where his body was first sighted. Godfrey knew things weren't adding up, but he also found his investigations hitting a roadblock. 
I took all of this information back to the police station and informed CID at Halifax, inspecting them now to investigate further, but instead was rebuffed. He died of natural causes. Just let it be. Some days later, I talked to PC Agley about this evidence, and he was of the same mind that the new witness information should be followed up by CID. But after speaking with Dave, our DC lead, the same lack of interest was reported again. Sorry, Alan, but now that we've identified the body, and because Adamski died from natural causes, there really is not much else we can do. The coroner's inquest following the postmortem and additional investigation didn't reveal really anything new. It concluded with an open verdict, and the case remained open and unsolved decades later. And then, on November 28, 1980, a few months after Adamski's body had been found, Godfrey would have an experience that would change the direction of his life. Here he is describing it for BBC Breakfast Time in the early 1980s. Now, this is from after the fact, but I think it's nice to hear the story from the witness. Can we start with the first bit? What were you actually doing that night, and what, what did you see? Well, I was driving the uh, Panda car uh, along Burnley Road in Todmorden, and uh, I came across this strange craft blocking the road. Describe it to me. Well, it was about 20 feet high, about 14 feet wide. Uh, it was a diamond-shaped object hovering about five feet off the ground. At this point, you didn't see anybody, did you? Uh, no, I didn't see anything but other than that. Did you approach it? I got within about 20 feet of it. And then you went back to your car to report it, did you? No, I didn't get out of the car. Ah. I didn't want to get out of the car. You didn't? No. <laughs> but you, you got on the blur, did you? I got on the radio, both radios, the VHF in the car and the UHF personal radio that we carry. Yeah. And I got no response at all. They didn't work? No. Was that unusual? Not in that particular area. There are black spots yeah. in the area. But the, the radios have worked there since. And then you left the scene, did you? The next thing I remember was I was at the other side of where the object had been, driving the car. Away? Away. Did you report it when you got back? I certainly did. They thought you were crackers, presumably. Yeah, they did. Godfrey's recounting of the event in his 2017 book matches what he said on television with some additional description of the object. He sketched it, and it looks almost like a diamond shape in profile, but round, 14 feet high, 20 feet wide, and spinning in a counterclockwise motion. Godfrey drove back to town, grabbed a fellow policeman. They go back to the site of the sighting. They're unable to find any trace of what Godfrey had seen. The next morning, Godfrey is unsure of what happened, but is convinced that something did happen. So it wasn't a dream, I muttered, mostly to myself. My first thought on waking up was that the previous night's events which flooded into my head had not really happened, and I was just remembering a vivid nightmare still lingering as dreams do. Now I knew differently. It was a strange feeling, a bit like if you've swallowed lots of ale the night before and the lads describe how you did something daft under the influence, but you can't remember much about it. Then the flashbacks start, and you know, however silly, that those antics were not just imagination. So it really happened, I kept saying to myself, hoping it might make this absurdity just go away. He goes into the station and endures some ribbing from his colleagues who, as you heard on the Breakfast Time interview, thought he was crackers. He's then summoned to talk to his superiors. As I knocked on the officer's door, I thought, what the hell is he going to say? 
probably asked me if I'd been drinking, which I never did on duty, of course. Come in, said the inspector loudly, followed by more softly, sit down and tell me what happened last night, Alan. Alan, I thought, that's unusual as it would normally be PC Godfrey. Anyway, I sat down to relate the events of the previous night, fully expecting him to start laughing at any point or at least come out with some sarcastic remark. But no, he just sat there, taking notes. Are you sure about the times, he said in a very serious voice, as if getting it straight for the record. I explained that I was, and also asked why. The reason the timing was important is because it turned out that other police in the area had seen something which seemed to corroborate Godfrey's account of what he experienced. Here, it's discussed on the ITV show Strange But True, which aired on May 21st, 1993. This was actually the pilot for this TV show, which would run from 1994 to 1997. Then there's John Porter, one of five other police witnesses that night. An hour before Alan Godfrey's encounter, he was out searching moorland quarries for stolen motorbikes. We're walking down the moor from the main road. Something told me to turn around. I turned, and in the sky was a very cold steel blue line. It moved in a sweeping arc across the sky, about 12 miles, I would estimate, in one second. Eventually, I went up the road and observed this same cold steel blue light sweeping away in a low arc towards Todbedding, and that's the last I saw of it. Later that evening, Godfrey received a call from his brother, who relayed a story from a local school custodian named Leonard Smith that had similarities to what Godfrey had experienced. Godfrey set up a meeting with the man to get his story firsthand, Here's a clip of Smith explaining his sighting on that same episode of Strange But True. It sounds incredible, but Alan Godfrey isn't the only one who saw something in the same area on the same night. Another witness was school caretaker Leonard Smith. When I came round the corner to check the grounds, I looked up in the sky and this UFO was up in the sky, approximately over where I later learnt the area where Alan Godfrey had his experience. I didn't know at the time. Now, the object shot across the valley four times, backwards and forwards, and it vanished over the hills. Soon, word of what Godfrey had experienced started to spread. He spoke to the local newspaper about his sighting and described the feelings that had surfaced during the encounter. I described to the reporter a vague feeling that I had sensed whilst watching the object at very close quarters. It had been bugging me for days and was most odd, rather like a voice talking inside my head that just seemed to say to me, this is not for your eyes, Godfrey. You should not be seeing this. After the story is published, Godfrey noted that his working conditions began to change. And that's where we'll pick up the story after this break. If you like The Saucer Life and want more, you can support us in exchange for bonus content. Patrons get the episodes before everybody else, and there's bonus content every month of one sort or another. If interested, you can check it out at patreon.com slash chizomedia or via the link in the show notes. You can check out past episodes at saucerlife.com or your favorite podcast app. And as always, we're on x or whatever it is now and instagram at saucer life and you can email us at the saucer life at gmail.com you can contact us by post at chizomedia p.o box 68 grand blank michigan 
48480. Also, related to this episode, check the show notes for a link to the Bandcamp page of The Night Monitor, an artist who produces creepy and atmospheric electronic music, often with a paranormal or occult theme. Their recent release, Close Encounters of the Pennine Kind, was inspired by alan godfrey's experiences and just looking at the uh, the cassette box yes cassette we've got track titles like window area a policeman's lot adamski 2 night shift yes this is not for your eyes there we go so it's it's good stuff it's fun stuff um i urge you to check it out and now let's get back to the story <laughs> So things began to change for Godfrey after his story is published in the local newspaper and it becomes more widely known. He is transferred to another police station that was very inconvenient for him to get to from home. It's, it's sort of like a, we have no real reason to move you, but we're going to just because it's inconvenient. And because of his transportation issues, he was officially issued a bicycle to use. And this was, he believed, some kind of joke about the injuries he suffered earlier in his career that would make riding a bike really uncomfortable. Then he receives a call from an inspector with the fraud squad from nearby Manchester who wants to meet with him regarding his UFO encounter. The inspector had made a connection between Adamski's death and Godfrey's experience, which Godfrey says he has not considered before. Understandably, he was nervous to meet with the inspector, who brought a few other people with him, including a lawyer. Godfrey was somewhat reassured when it turned out that all of these men were from the Manchester UFO Research Association and were investigating his claims. The inspector had experienced UFO sightings of his own, and after questioning Godfrey carefully, determined that he had experienced a period of missing time. They also explained to Godfrey that the oddness he felt during the experience was an example of what UFO researcher Jenny Randalls had called the Oz Factor. I called it this because it feels as if the witness is temporarily extracted from our world to visit another reality where rules of time and space seem different, just like Dorothy arrives in Oz in the classic fairy tale after encountering a force arriving from the sky and has no idea how or why. Because of this strangeness, and especially because of the period of missing time, the men asked Godfrey if he would be willing to undergo hypnosis to recover his memories. But before we get to hypnosis, I do want to look at one thing. How did this sighting get connected to the death of Sigmund Adamski? Godfrey believed that despite the strangeness of the Adamski case, it was not connected to UFO activity. My suspicion over the years is that speculation linking the death with aliens did not help any further investigation, a daft theory with no obvious substance whatsoever. He then asked in his book, basically, why did this connection occur? And Godfrey places the responsibility at the door of British UFO researcher Jenny Randalls, saying, quote, Jenny first mentioned the Adamski case in print and admits she was accidentally to blame for the media getting wind of this. This was the article, A Policeman's Lot, which we covered in our last episode about Flying Saucer Review. Randalls and her fellow researchers met with Mrs. Adamski 
in an effort to help uncover what might have happened to Ziggy, as he was known to his friends. But Randall's concluded that there was no relevance of the case to any UFO investigations. Randall's would later tell Godfrey the following. In retrospect, I probably should not have connected these two events, even though it was just for a UFO journal whose readers would know why I did. I was not linking them anywhere in public and kept your identity anonymous and never suggested that Adamski was abducted by aliens because it was not our conclusion at the Manchester UFO Research Association that he was. We only tried to help Lottie after the inquest ended without giving her resolution. Lottie, by the way, is Adamski's wife. So if someone wants to connect the death of, Uf- the death of Adamski to UFO sightings in the area, I don't think it's entirely outrageous. But on the other hand, while Godfrey himself is a connection in the death, he investigated the the, the death, he, in, he in had the UFO encounter, there were other sightings in the area and other people saw what Godfrey saw. I don't know. I like to think there, there could be a connection. I think that's interesting. But I suspect there would be much, much less of a connection – talked about by people if Mr. Adamski had been named Smith or Jones, for example. Anyway, back to the hypnosis. Godfrey describes the process, emphasizing that he did not remember anything about it. And that's because near the end of the session, he began to experience significant distress. The hypnotherapist planted a suggestion that he forget everything, at least consciously, to reduce any trauma involved. But there were some after effects. My headache had come back with a vengeance, and my legs were heavy, and I'd started to sweat profusely again. All that I could do was crash out on top of the bed. And then the dream started. There was this strange noise all around me, reverberating like an echo that was swirling about inside my head. Minim, manim, manim, manim. It was all in weird tones, hard to describe in words. Then this image kept appearing in my mind, and it was like nothing I had ever seen. The figure was about three feet high with a very large light bulb shaped head, which looked far too big for the body underneath. There were also those eyes, large, black, and egg-shaped. They were really so very odd. But even stranger was that there was no mouth or trace of a nose on the face. The being kept putting that face right up to mine and staring deep into my eyes and reaching out with what looked like withered arms sprouting long fingers trying to touch me. I just kept shouting really loud for it to get off me and lashing out with my fists, but it kept coming back again and again. Finally, I managed to get my foot into the flimsy body of this creature, and with a mighty kick, it fell to the ground, and so did I, carried forward by the momentum of my lunge. I crashed to the floor with a bump. In the waking world, I had fallen out of bed. Now, that certainly seems like something deeply strange happened to Godfrey during that period he can't remember. The hypnosis sessions would continue, and Godfrey became more deeply involved in the local UFO scene. At one point, he received a letter from a professor Valery Sakharov from the Institute of Science and Technology in Moscow. He wanted information on Godfrey's sighting, as well as the recent events in Rendlesham Forest. Godfrey and his fellow UFO investigators were keen to share information But then Godfrey noticed strange clicks and other noises on his telephone line. He began to suspect that he was being wiretapped. His suspicions were confirmed when he had a surprise meeting one day at the police station. 
I stood there for a few seconds before the inspector told me to sit down, and he had just started to introduce the gentleman when the man swiftly interrupted and said, Just call me the man from the ministry. I stared at him. He was wearing a very thin smile, half looking down at the floor, and with his first fingers from both hands tapping slowly but gently against his lips. It was a little unnerving. I have been reading your report about the incident that occurred back in November of um, last year with what, uh, what shall we call it, an unusual, if not unbelievable, object that you have claimed to have seen hovering above and completely blocking the road. The man spoke in a slow and quiet voice, and his odd manner of speech clashed with how he seemed to be rather well-educated. He was holding a brown file cover which lay open across his knee with some papers inside that he kept glancing down at in order to read. I presumed them to be pages from my official police report in the sighting, which of course I had not seen. Are we supposed to believe this? There's definitely a man in black vibe going on here, but interestingly, after um, Godfrey angrily, you know, explains that what you know what he said he saw is what he saw, um, he sort of blows off some steam, and the tone shifts toward a possibly more terrestrial angle to everything that might be going on. Who exactly are you, anyway? I asked the stranger. And what's all this call-me-the-man-from-the-ministry guff? Patience, that's all I ask. Let me explain. Then he talked about the letters that I had received from the Russian professor. The mystery man informed me that he had read copies of both letters after they were passed on to him at his ministry office. And although there was nothing in them that would be any real use to Whitehall... They were aware of the author and his motives, and the stranger now seemed to take particular pleasure in adding, these motives were not, shall we say, what they seemed to be. As he spoke, the hint of mystery behind his voice was obvious and rather chilling. It made me shiver. You know, thinking about the context of this, it's it's the early 1980s. The Cold War is heating up a little bit and you've got a police officer who has had a strange encounter with something in the sky entering into correspondence with someone in the Soviet Union you can see why elements of the uh, of the government might have been if not concerned at least sort of wanting to pay attention to make sure there isn't anything strange going on and Godfrey also points out that at the time these conversations were taking place, the Rendlesham Forest incident was not widely known amongst the public. Jenny Randalls and other investigators at the time also believed they were subject to wiretapping. As we, and as we saw, the, the letters between Godfrey and this professor ended up in official hands. He did pass them on to his superiors, but then his superiors passed them on further. And later, declassified documents would confirm that there were government concerns about UFO investigations into whatever did happen at Rendlesham Forest. Randalls also writes, um, or sort of appears in Godfrey's book, sort of as an expert witness or voice. Um, She talks about the possibility that this event might have involved a mishap involving American nuclear weapons. And she would expand to Godfrey on the broader context of the concerns military and intelligence officials might have had about all of this. 
It is worth remembering that at this time, the women's peace movement protesting against cruise missiles at U.S. bases in the U.K. was causing real trouble for the government, and that protest was covertly observed. So three women jointly investigating a UFO case involving a USAF base might have looked rather suspicious in that context, and your letter from Russia about it may have attracted interest too. As with many UFO cases, even when there is clearly something very strange going on, a lot of times government or military interest seems to be about terrestrial events that the experiencer might not have known anything about. These fields tend to overlap. Now, while all of this is going on, Godfrey was preparing to watch some of the videotapes of his hypnosis along with fellow investigators. Now, I've thought a lot about how to talk about his, his hypnosis. The, um, the chance encounters in the Valley of Lights has something of a transcript. There are television shows that have some clips. But I decided that the best way to do this, and I'm not sure this is the best way to do it, but this is what I've decided, is to play some things where Godfrey talks about what he learned from the hypnosis, from the television programs, on which he appeared. This isn't the same as watching a transcript of or watching the recording of the hypnosis session or trying to read through a transcript, but it is um, it is maybe a little more clear as we listen. So here is uh, Godfrey from that BBC Breakfast Time program. And this is a, a lengthy clip, and I, I apologize for that. I don't want you to think that I'm I'm just sort of throwing filler in there. But when we have somebody in their own words describing something, I think that is much more, I think, maybe engaging than, uh, than me trying to do it. So here is uh, Alan Godfrey and um, his story of what happened when his memories were supposedly retrieved via hypnosis. Now then, as a result of hypnosis, a lot of that story has been filled in, hasn't it? Now, what, is, <clears throat> what do you recollect from the result of the hypnosis? Well, as I say, I have no conscious memory of what I said under hypnosis. The only thing I could, I can go off is uh, the hypnotic regressions were videotaped. Yeah. And uh, I, I think there was about three or four tapes done. And when I actually was allowed to see them at the end of the session, uh, it was quite frightening. What you'd said under hypnosis? Mm. So what, what, tell me the other story now, the one that they, they drew out under hypnosis. Well, under hypnosis, uh, when I see the craft itself, as I said before, I didn't get out of the car consciously. I find myself getting out of the car, and uh, for some reason, I have no idea why, uh, a strange, very powerful beam of light is shone towards me, which blinds me. I jump back in the car in panic, and then there is some sort of a blackout. And after the blackout, I wake up in some sort of an examination room. I see. So. Uh this spaceship, or whatever it is, uh, did you see that in your recollected...? Uh... Yes, everything in unhypnotic regression, everything was accurate right up to... The bit that... The when I got out of the car, yes. Yeah. Okay, well, describe this creature to me, this man. Well, he was a humanoid, or of human appearance. He's about six feet high. But not quite a human being, you think? Well, he had a human appearance. Yeah. Uh, he, he had a beard, and he, he wore some sort of a skull cap and he wore like a white gown. He was very pleasant, 
in appearance. He wasn't at all frightening to look at. Okay, now you've, you've got yourself into this room. What goes on there? Who else is there? <clears throat> there were, uh, I think I said there was eight uh, small three-foot-high creatures that transpilated during the hypnotic regression uh, as robots. Uh, were you in a normal room or were you in a spaceship rather like uh, Doctor Who's time capsule? Were you in something as kind uh, of... It looked bigger than his capsule. Yeah. You know, it doesn't look very big, does it? Really? Yeah. <laughs> but inside it, yes, very, I would say it's very similar. And then they, what, they tried to undress you, didn't they, at one point? Take your shoes and socks off. Why? Why was that? Well, this is one of the funny things about it. When I got back to the station, I found that my left boot was split and I had a burn mark on the instep mm -hmm. of my left foot. And in the hypnotic regression, they actually examined my left foot. Now, that's remarkable to me, with the other evidence of the other police officers seeing the craft as well. Isn't How did your experience end in this place you were with, with these people? <clears throat> uh, the doctor woke me up. We never actually got to an ending. Yeah. Uh, I was wired up to some heart machines, yeah. and they completely went off the scale. I was in such stress that the, both doctors stopped, stopped the hypnotic regressions. Godfrey would also recall that the man on the ship was named, at first he thought the name was Joseph, but then later he remembered that it was actually Yosef with a Y. So in the midst of all of this, after hearing these recordings of, of him in these hypnotic sessions, what was Godfrey's sort of assessment of all of it. Do you believe now in UFOs or, or what? <clears throat> Are you convinced that those things actually happen to you or, or it's just in your mind somewhere as an imagination or a dream or something like that? Well, the UFO certainly existed. You're uh, sure? Of that? Yes, it was a nuts and bolts craft. I'm, I think I'm quite capable of seeing something from 20 feet. Uh, well, if I said to you, anything you, take, anything you say will be taken out of use in evidence, you would say that you saw that thing? Uh, yes, I would, swear on, I would swear on the Holy Bible. You what would. I saw that day, I've seen nothing of the like except in science fiction films. And what other thoughts have you had about the whole experience? Uh, the abduction part, well, I've thought about it. I've thought, well, perhaps it's something that I've read about and seen as Doctor Who. Mm. And because of my experience, it somehow got jumbled up. Yeah. Or it actually happened. Yeah. What strikes me about this is that Godfrey's certainty is based primarily, it, it seems to me just from, from this, primarily based on his actual recalled memories of seeing the craft. Um, and, you know, his, his sort of the hypnotic regression stuff, he acknowledges that could be, you know, a jumbled up bit of Doctor Who story that he had seen. And speaking of, and, and the reason he brings up Doctor Who and, and the TARDIS and things in relation to this. And the first time I was watching this, I was like, boy, I mean, Doctor Who must have been really, you know, into, in the zeitgeist, you know, in, in the 1980s in a way that, that is really impressive. Uh, but then as I watched the whole clip, it turns out that other guests on BBC Breakfast Time on this day are Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant the sixth doctor and his uh, his companion Perry which puts this in um in in 1985 probably um and uh, and, and and they they get the doctor and the doctor's assistant or the actors who play them weighing in on uh, on the story but what's interesting about this is that that there is this this nuts and bolts aspect to things 
Now, throughout all this, uh, Godfrey's superiors in the police force were getting increasingly hostile toward him in many ways, but he is still very careful to to do what he's supposed to do in balancing his uh, increasing visibility as a UFO experiencer with his jobs his job as a police constable. So in 1981, when he is approached by John Sheard and Stuart Bonney of the Sunday Mirror newspaper to, um, to, to have an interview, Godfrey goes to his supervisors and gets permission for this interview to take place. The article would, um, with the great headline, Amazing UFO Death Riddle, would appear in the September 27th, 1981 edition of the Sunday Mirror. And it um, it runs down the story of uh, Zygmunt Adamski's death and the mysteries surrounding that. It also um, talks about, uh, about Godfrey and um, the sighting that he uh, that he found, and it, it's you know they they don't uh, they don't name him, um, and uh, they they say that the West Yorkshire police would not allow us to interview the officer. So we're still in the early days of this. Um, they talked to him for background, but they did not um, they did not get the whole story from him. But despite this, um, just the story being in the uh, being in the paper would have consequences for Godfrey, even though he had obtained permission. And what's interesting is that um, the people who go after him for uh, helping the newspapers with the story don't seem to have known that he had gotten permission for all of this. Now, who exactly gave you permission to speak to the Sunday Mirror when you had been specifically ordered not to speak to any members of the press? What do you mean? The police press office gave me permission. They contacted our divisional headquarters, and the divisional commander asked me to do the interview. So what exactly is the problem? He looked shocked and a little confused by my reply, as it appeared not to be what he had been led to expect. I was then asked to wait outside. It seemed an age before I was called back in, and then I was told there had been a misunderstanding, and I should return to my duties back at Todd Morton. No explanation or apology was offered. Godfrey would be named and interviewed uh, more extensively uh, with discussion of his hypnotic regressions in a 1981 article, follow-up article in the Sunday Mirror from November 29th, also by John Sheard. Now, subsequent reporting ranged from helpful, you know, various newspapers and articles talking to Jenny Randalls, talking to other UFO researchers about other sightings that night. But some articles, such as uh, this one from the November 30th, 1981 edition of the Daily Mirror, were uh, down, downright, down white, downright uh, derisive and mocking. And apologies in advance to uh, to references to British things that uh, that I, I do not understand. A case for the flying squad. A Yorkshire policeman has, under hypnosis, described seeing a flying saucer manned, if that's the word, by a tall humanoid and eight small robots. Recognizing a humanoid when he sees one, especially at 5.15 a.m. in late November in Todd Morden, proves once again how wonderful our policemen are. On the other hand, he could have seen a jet-powered pumpkin carrying Snow White and the Seven Dwarves back from a night out in Barnsley with Arthur Scargill. 
True, he says there were eight small creatures, but perhaps he counted Dopey twice. That would be understandable. Alternatively, he may have stumbled upon a Tory party meeting being addressed by Sir Geoffrey Howe. If humanoid means anything at all, it certainly describes Sir Geoffrey. This theory would also account for the audience being mistaken for robots. We can rule out that it was Count Dracula traveling with a miniaturized retinue. Contrary to legend, the Count was a kindly man, not taken to frightening innocent coppers. More boringly, the PC may have just been dreaming. The world teems with solid, stolid, reliable, hardworking, and trustworthy citizens who believe passionately in Atlantis, the Second Coming, the Bermuda Triangle, flying saucers, and economic recovery under Mrs. Thatcher. Sad to say, they are all fantasies. I like the line about Thatcher, but the rest of it is, is exceptionally snarky. So Godfrey, Godfrey is, is increasingly uh, feeling like he's being unfairly targeted. He's transferred again to a station 40 miles from his home, and there, his family was established in school and such. The persecution, so he didn't feel comfortable moving them. The persecution continues, and Godfrey visits the police medical officer to sort of get ahead of sort of claims that he might not be fit for duty. And he goes and he says, I need to be certified that I am still physically and mentally up to the task of serving as a police officer. The doctor is sympathetic to Godfrey's concerns and says that he'll clear him both physically and psychologically, but he did have a warning. Alan, just watch your back. There are people out there who are determined to do you harm in any way that they can. To be blunt, they want you out, and will stop at nothing until they succeed. Godfrey's paranoia was increasing, and he's transferred once more. Although this new posting in Halifax is much more pleasant, when he goes back home to Todd Morton, where he lives and where his family still lives, he finds out that he is banned from going into the police station, that he's been accused of stealing things from the station, and this is all damaging his standing in the community. Godfrey worked with his UFO friend, who was also an attorney, to get statements from community members and fellow police officers about these attacks on his reputation. And all that ended up happening was that internal affairs stepped up the investigation concerning Godfrey's alleged theft, which was of a police helmet. Disgusted by the lack of support he was receiving, Godfrey resigned from the police union. And one day, at the police station in Halifax, Godfrey's co-worker informs him that a visitor with police ID came into the station and asked where the lockers were. Godfrey is immediately suspicious and goes down to inspect his locker, where he gets a surprise. When I arrived at my locker, everything seemed to be fine, until I inserted the key and turned it, and the lock on the inside fell off with a clang. I could see that inside there was now a police helmet on the top shelf, where there was not one before when I had last opened it. Then, as I pulled it out to see whose helmet it was, realizing that it was not mine, two small see-through packages fell to the floor from within. I picked them up, and inside both, there was a white powder which looked very suspicious indeed. So, if this account is to be believed, and I don't see why, why I should not believe Godfrey's account of this, um, it sounds like they are trying to set him up with uh, stolen, uh, stolen goods and 
uh, and drugs to try to drum him out of the police, uh, the police service. And when Godfrey asks his coworker, you know, for a description of the person who who came to uh, it, quote check out the locker, Godfrey realizes that this evidence was planted by the same man from the ministry who had attempted to intimidate him earlier. He removes the stolen material for his locker so that when the investigators ask to search it, there will be nothing to find. And Godfrey goes through that happening and they're, they're, they're sort of surprised that there was nothing in the locker. Godfrey also recorded the entire exchange for his own protection. Although he's deeply concerned about these attacks, uh, these attacks on him, Godfrey continues to work with Jenny Randalls, who was writing a book on the rash of sightings in the Pennines, including Godfrey's account. But then an incident happens which seals Godfrey's fate as far as his police career is concerned. I was working night shift down the cells when a young teenager was brought in under arrest for assault. He was high from glue sniffing and as strong as an ox. As we attempted to take him to the cells, he lashed out and hit one of the arresting officers, then viciously kicked me in the groin. I toppled like a tree. He had caught me in the area of my multiple previous operations, and I was in agony again. This, this poor guy cannot, cannot get a break. He's forced to retire due to these injuries, but... He's not happy about it, and he does feel like even with the injuries, there was an element of him sort of being railroaded out of uh, out of this position. But in a final gesture of defiance, those clips we heard from that BBC breakfast program, he appeared on this show before he ended his employment with the police uh, service, and he was in full uniform at the time, much to his sh- the chagrin of his supervisors and anger uh, from some of them that he would seemingly go as a police officer to to share these stories. But there was nothing they could really do to him at that point. Godfrey would continue to uh, appear on television programs and work with UFO investigators to uh, to share his story and to try to gain some understanding of it. Um, in the book, in his sort of conclusions in the book, he he relies consistently on what he knows he saw consciously of the split boot and the burns on his foot. And as for the hypnosis – he doesn't know what might be real and what might not be, but he is convinced that something significant happened to him on that night. And his biggest concerns, well, maybe not biggest, but also concerning, as concerning, if he didn't see something that, in the words of the voice he heard, was not for his eyes, why was there so much effort to discredit him personally, not just as a witness, but as a police officer, harassment, things like that. If there wasn't something to what he saw, why would those things have taken place? And as for Jenny Randall, she can, she contributes an afterword to this book as well and says that while she is skeptical of hypnotic regression as a means of eliciting absolute truth about something, she is very certain that Godfrey saw some kind of object on that night. 
And so the, the, what conclusions can we draw? I don't know. Uh, but this is, for me, this is one of those cases that is much like uh, Orfeo Angelucci. Um, there's, I, I don't doubt that there is something there. Something strange happened to Alan Godfrey. And I don't know what it was. And one of the things that, that is refreshing about this case that I, I sort of draw, I don't know, strength from in this case is that, um, that Godfrey doesn't, um, does, doesn't go too far in trying to present some kind of, you know, final answer on what he saw. He is someone who had a remarkable experience and suffered from sharing that experience. And he says outright in the book, if he knew what would happen on his, on the job, in the community, to his reputation, if he would have known any of that would have happened, he would have kept his mouth shut. He would not have told anybody about what he experienced. And the only question I have from that is how many others have made the same decision and what stories might be out there that we aren't getting. Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels. We'll address those next time. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.